Well, good morning. Hey, before we get started, I just wanted to thank you all for last week. That was a lot of fun. That was a, a great time, and I think it really profoundly blessed David and Carolyn. Uh, just uh, all the things you guys shared, all of the, the work that people put in to seeing that happen, uh, just all of your participation in that. I think it, it was a great blessing to those guys. Uh, this week and next week, they are taking some time to uh, be with friends and to, to pray and think through where God's taking uh, their ministry. And uh, we'll be returning in, in about two weeks. David will be preaching again for us. But uh, they're just taking some time to, to pray about where God is taking this ministry. Again, thank you. Uh, last week really blessed them. This week we are back in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to talk about how to bless God. We're going to finish the uh, sentence that David started two weeks ago. If you remember, uh, he told us that in Ephesians 1, from verse 3 all the way through verse 14, is one long, complicated sentence. And, and David... Uh, has uh, taken us about halfway through. This week we're going to pick up on around verse 7. But we, before we get focused on that, let me just uh, remind us what's going on, what the context is. Paul starts this sentence by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, if you have a New International Version, unfortunately, they translated that first word, praise, but it's blessed. It's the same word that shows up twice more in that first part of the sentence. It, bless God. See, this uh, is a, a call to bless God. That's what this whole sentence is about, blessing God. But how do we bless God? Now, theologically, that seems feels like a, a hard question. And how do you bless God, who's the giver of every blessing? How do you give anything to God, who gives us all things that we have, all the good that we have? Uh, every good and precious gift cometh from above. Anything we have to give to God, He already has. How do you bless a God who has everything? Well, let me uh, think about this. Now, how do you bless anyone who gives you something? Think about your birthday. How do you bless people who give you birthday presents? Let's say uh, your husband or your wife thought about this for, for a couple of months. They've been saving up. And they go out and they pick the perfect present. Something you really, really need. Something that's just going to delight you and, and excite you. And they bring it home and they wrap it up beautifully. And, and on your birthday, they bring it out and they hand it to you. How do you bless them? You look at it say, thanks. Throw it on the couch and go back to what you were doing, leaving it unopened. You know, how are they going to feel? Now, the way you bless the giver of a gift is you open it up and you look at it and you turn it over in your hands and you look at it from different angles and you begin to marvel at the, the thought and the love that went into picking that gift for you. You allow your heart to begin to swell with gratitude that somebody loved you that much. And you begin to think about and to talk about how valuable, how useful, how great this gift is. 
Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. But the way we bless someone who gives is that we let what they give delight us. Light up our eyes with, with delight and excitement about what they've given us. That's the way you, you bless the giver of a gift. You let them see you enjoying it, putting it to work, using it in your life, seeing it enrich your life. And that's how we bless God who is the giver of every good thing. That's how we bless God who gives us every spiritual blessing. We look at what He's given us. We examine it. We think about how valuable this is. We begin to allow our hearts to swell with gratitude that He loved us that much to give us such a precious, valuable, expensive, thoughtful gift. We, we let our eyes light up with delight like a, like a child who's gotten their first bicycle. And we start to put that gift into use and and talk to God about how it's enriching our lives, how valuable it is and how grateful we are. We bless the giver. We bless God by letting His blessings thoroughly bless us. So uh, my goal this morning is to bless God. is Is for us, as we begin to look at these blessings and turn them over a little bit in our hands with the, the amount of time that we have to think about how useful, how valuable these blessings are and begin to start to put them to use in our lives. The goal is that we begin to bless God by valuing, by using, by enjoying, by delighting in the things that He has given us. Our goal this morning is to bless God for His blessings. Okay, now two more phrases in in this beginning of our sentence that I want to briefly touch on before we get into the particulars. First is the idea of spiritual blessings. Paul said that that God that, that that God has given us spiritual blessings. Now, what is a spiritual blessing, and what good is a spiritual blessing? What use is a spiritual blessing? The other phrase I wanted to look at was, he says, we've been given these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In the heavenlies, literally. Where are the heavenlies and what good is a spiritual blessing in the heavenlies? We live earthly lives. We drive earthly cars. We pay earthly bills. We go to earthly jobs. We have earthly families. We get earthly toothaches. So what good are spiritual blessings in heavenly places? I think these uh, questions have probably done more to keep people from enjoying God's blessings than than almost any other set of questions. What are the heavenlies? What are spiritual blessings? When we think about the heavenlies, we think about maybe somewhere out there after we die. We we think about spiritual blessings. We talk about kind of abstract blessings metaphysical blessings that really have no impact on my day-to-day life on, on, on here and now. They really aren't something that, that will affect me very much. We use terms like, well, this is a positional truth. And we've got no clue what that means. So, in essence, we've given it a nice title. We can put it on the shelf and treat it like it was unreal or, or at least irrelevant to our daily lives. And I've got to confess, that's how I used to read this stuff. You know, that's great stuff. It has nothing to do with my life, but that's great stuff. 
But again, are these these blessings really that separated from our real lives? Let's take a quick look at a couple of other places in Ephesians where Paul talks about the heavenlies. And I think we can get a picture of what he's talking about and realize how practical this stuff is. A little later on in chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus, that Christ has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heavenly places, in the heavenlies. So the first thing we realize is that the heavenlies is where Christ is in authority. He's in charge there. That right hand of the throne of God is the place of ultimate authority. So in the heavenlies, Christ is in control. He's in charge. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul applies the gospel that what's true of Christ, because we're in Christ, is now true of us. So he says, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So the heavenly places, the heavenlies are where we are under that control, that authority of Christ, where we share that control. Again, this is all pretty abstract and, and detached from real life. But are the heavenlies really divorced from our everyday experience? I don't think... According to Paul. Now listen to chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In the heavenlies. You see, this is where the real struggles of our lives take place. There is no more important aspect of your life than the heavenlies. Where do we run into these spiritual forces, these bad guys? Inside. In our thinking, in our imaginations, in our our wills, in our intellect, in our desires, in our feelings. That's where we encounter. That's where we engage in these struggles. Inside, not outside. Quite honestly, this is where the quality of your life is determined. Inside. This is where your, your peace or your restlessness is determined. This is where your joy or your dissatisfaction is determined. There are very rich and physically comfortable people. We're filled with dissatisfaction and restlessness. While a martyr whose body is being burned at the stake, his heart overflows with joy, peace, and love. Because it's what's going on inside that determines the quality of our lives. This determines the quality of our relationships. This determines our attitude toward life and how we go through life. See, the uh, heavenlies... It's where I have authority. Where I, when, I, when I begin to get uh, angry at my wife, I can say, wait a minute. I have the authority. I have the, the, the ability to stop and say, I don't have to do this. I can love her. I can treat her with understanding and patience. Or, or, or when, I, when, when my feelings would lead me to grumble, I can stop and become aware of the heavenlies and the blessings that God has given me there. And I can have my heart filled with joy and peace rather than grumbling. There is nothing more practical than the resources, the blessings that we have in the heavenlies. You've heard the saying that somebody is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. That's garbage. That that speaks of a uh, 
of a worldly religion that's kind of used as a mask to hide behind. The fact is, to be any earthly good, you have to be thoroughly heavenly-minded. You have to be so in contact with God and the resources that He provides inside that you are not caught up in everything that's going on around you. You can deal with what's going around you with wisdom and self-control and patience and kindness and joy, long-suffering. See, as a result, we live our life on this earth in a way that honors God, in a way that is filled with patience. We're able to love others in a way unheard of, able to trust God in the midst of whatever's going on. There is nothing more practical than the blessings, the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Now realize that non-Christians deal with heavenly places as well. They have the same feelings, the same imaginations, the same temptations, the, the same concerns and fears as we do. The same inner life, yet without the blessings, without the resources that God has given us. Let's not act like we don't have them. Let's not take these beautiful, precious, valuable gifts and throw them on the couch unopened and live as if we didn't have those resources. That's what blessing God is all about, is realizing that there is nothing more valuable here and now than spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Okay, well, let's take a look at some of these uh, spiritual blessings, uh, these wonderful gifts that God has given us. We don't have time to look very fully. There's a lot of them listed here. In fact, the rest of our lives will be spent looking at these things and, and realizing more and more of how valuable they are, how precious they are, how useful they are, more and more learning how to put them to work in our lives and thus bless the one who gave them to us, enjoying them, delighting them, letting them light up our eyes with delight. David started our our sentence two weeks ago. He began by pointing out some of our blessings. He pointed out that we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We are no afterthought. You aren't a last-minute fill-in along for the ride. The fact is that you've been on God's mind from the beginning. He has thought deeply about you personally, individually. And you are an important part of his plans. The other blessing that David described to us, that that we have been adopted as sons. Any parent of an adopted child will tell you that that child is twice loved. You know, we're family. Nothing can ever change that. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we've been placed in Christ, we are sons of God. We are family. We are His kids. And He loves us. He loved you and me enough to bring us into His family. And once we're there, we are a delight to Him. When my children walk into the room... I am delighted. I just like to be with them. I like to see them. And God likes to be with you. He likes to see you. And here's the mind-blowing part. You are as welcome, you are as delightful to God as Jesus Christ is. And that's mind-blowing. That's amazing. But it's true. 
This leads us to praise the glory of His grace. We don't deserve this. His grace is overwhelming. All right, well, let's get into the second half of the sentence. The rest of the blessings can be put into three main ideas. Redemption, revelation, and security. Sorry, I couldn't think of another R. I tried. Would have made a nice three-point sermon, but... Redemption, revelation, and security. Okay, the first, redemption is in verses 7 and 8. Let me try to read these without my glasses. <clears throat> in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. This blessing cost God dearly. It did not come cheaply. It was purchased with the blood of His Son. And I think even before we start to look at it, to realize what a valuable, what a precious gift this is. Paul describes redemption as the forgiveness of, of our sins. See, this is one of the most fundamental blessings that we have. One of the, or the basic problem with mankind, with you and me, is guilt from our sins. We have not lived for God. We've lived for ourselves. We have not loved others freely and selflessly. We have used them and manipulated them to meet our needs. We know this. Deep down, we know this. We've been unloving and selfish. And most of our emotional energy is spent hiding from this fact. Trying to cover it up. Trying to to feel okay about ourselves. But it just doesn't work. We know that God is righteous and holy and cannot tolerate evil. And we know that we fall short. We don't measure up. So we hide from God. Often we use religion, uh, kind of a, uh, a Christian mask. We play at Christianity to avoid seeing our guilt. We uh, know that if other people saw what we were like inside, way down inside, man, they would reject us. And so, we, again, we hide, we cover up. We try to not let them see us. And we try to convince ourselves and others that our failings and our shortcomings aren't our fault. It's the other person's fault. Or it's our parents or siblings or our spouse or our boss or our neighbor. Somebody else's fault. And as a result, we're cut off. We turn on others. And we can't be real with each other because then people would see us as we really are. And that's way too risky. Our guilt causes us to hide from ourselves. We learn not to think too deeply. We, uh, we don't want to see ourselves quite that clearly. We learn ways of running from the pain. We turn to all kinds of uh, addictions and, and escapes. We turn to all kinds of strategies and excuses. But all these do is leave us trapped in our, our confusion and our fear in our loneliness. Guilt makes us lonely. Our sins leave us isolated, suspicious, resentful, confused, despairing, alone. 
Guilt leaves us afraid and alone, trapped in our sins with no way out. That is why the miracle of forgiveness is one of the most precious blessings that God has given us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, our sins were paid for. Our guilt was erased. God accepts you and me in Christ just like He accepts His Son. God writes across all of our debts paid in full. We can turn to God in the midst of our failures and our sins and know that He understands. Know that He has forgiven us. Because of this, we can accept ourselves. You know, we... uh, uh, We'd come to God and we say, God, you could never accept me. And he says, I know what you've done. And I've forgiven you. Now turn to me and I'll heal you. And as we begin to, to boldly come before the throne of God because of what Jesus Christ has already done for us, we begin to find freedom to let others see us as we are. Now, they may reject us, but that's okay because God has already accepted us. And if they have been forgiven, they will understand and they will forgive us as well. The Bible is very clear on that. That they, if if someone has been forgiven, they will extend that same forgiveness that they receive from God to others. We can begin to look at ourselves. When I realize that the, the... Wickedness and the selfishness that I'm just now starting to discover. God knew all along, and He says, I still love you. I've known this from way back. You're just now seeing it. Then I can accept myself, know that I'm loved. And when I do, when I look squarely at my sin, it loses its power over me. See, the word that, that Paul used here for forgiveness of sin means to be released. We are released from our sins, first from the guilt. And then as our courage grows to look at ourselves as God sees us, we're released from the control that our addictions and our sins and our habits and our patterns have in our lives. God takes us through a process of freeing us in our behavior as well as as from the guilt. There is no greater freedom. When you fail, turn to God. Now, you'll be tempted to say, well, I just yelled at my kids. God doesn't want to see me. He's disgusted with me. It'll take me hours and hours of prayer and Bible study to work my way back to God. Well, you know, that is not true. God is as close as the heavenlies. He's right there inside waiting at the door. All you do is you turn there to Him. You realize His presence and you accept His love in the heavenly places. You accept His forgiveness. You don't don't pretend that that wasn't sin. You don't blame it on the kids. You don't blame it on your day. You face it as sin, but you also realize that He has loved you and He has taken care of that sin and He forgives you and that He is giving you release, freedom from that sin. And the next time that you find yourself starting to do it, you can stop and say, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. I'm free. I have been redeemed. 
We begin to use that resource, that spiritual blessing. And as we do, as we look ourselves straight in the face, we begin to understand things. We begin to understand ourselves. We begin to understand other people. We begin to gain what Paul calls wisdom and understanding. And that's what leads into the next blessing, the blessing of revelation. Verses uh, 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. See, he made known to us the mystery or or the secret of his will. People uh, apart from Christ, apart from this blessing have to try to figure out what's going on with people and with the world so they have to develop some human philosophy some theory so we have marxism we have liberalism we have conservatism we have behavioralism we got all kinds of isms people trying to figure it out make it all fit and understandable but these don't work because the world isn't run by human philosophy it's run by the will of god as paul puts it By His good pleasure. And the only way to know what God is doing in this world, the only way to really understand what's happening, is for God to tell us. This is one of Paul's favorite blessings. He talks about this a lot. He realized what an incredible privilege it is for God to have let us in on the plan. On His plan for history. And that plan is specifically described in verse 10. Now, unfortunately, the New International Version makes this sound like a a future plan, that that this will happen when the times are right. But really, the terms Paul used tell us that it's a plan that's already in effect. The, the, The term he uses here literally is in the fullness of time. That's the phrase that Paul uses. In the fullness of time, God sent Christ. Now listen to Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. You see, the fullness of time describes that point at which it was time to send Jesus. That's been the plan, at the right time to send Jesus and then to bring everything together in Him. The plan all along, right from the beginning, was to bring all things together in Christ. You see, all of the promises from Adam and Abraham, Moses, all the prophets, all of the promises are fulfilled in Christ. All of the sacrifices and the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Christ. All of history from the beginning until Christ's first coming was leading up to that first coming. And now history is leading up to His second coming where it's culminated in Christ. God and man are brought together in love in Christ. People, nations, people who even hated each other are brought together in Christ. People from all over the world, radically different cultures, radically different thought patterns and ways of acting and living are brought together in Christ. This world, this in, our environment, which is being ravished by exploitation and, and pollution, 
will be restored in Christ. Uh, The angels, the spiritual forces, will be judged in Christ. Our personalities are even being brought back together in Christ. Everything comes together in Christ. Christ is the key to understanding everything. See, there's a cosmic plan by which God is right now in the process of putting everything right, putting everything together, and will finish that. Will one day have it all put together under Christ. As a result, we have no reason to be dismayed, to be frightened by what's going on in the world around us. We can understand it. We know where it's going. See, there's a cosmic plan, but there's also a personal plan. And that leads to the, uh, the final blessing, security. Verse 11, 11 and 12. This is actually going to go all the way through 14, but I'll just read the first two of these. He says, In him we have received an inheritance, that having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now again, unfortunately, and I'm sorry to keep doing this, but the New International Version is very misleading here. I think it mistranslates this. It says, we were chosen. Literally, it is, we have received an inheritance. If you have a New American Standard, you see that clearly. Because what Paul says is, we have an inheritance. Now, the word inheritance is a very interesting one. It, it, it can refer to what we inherit, but more broadly, more generally, it can refer to everything that comes our way in life, our destiny. It literally is our lot in life. And what Paul is saying is that our destiny has been predestined. So your life is not run by random chance, random circumstances, any more than this world is in chaos. Both may seem true, but they're not. God has a plan, and he's working that plan together. Paul said, your destiny has been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See, every detail is being brought together in God's plan so that with the result that we who were first to hope in Christ should live to the praise of his glory. Our lives will work out to God's glory. People will praise God as a result of us. What an incredible comfort to know that God's going to work it out. All the things that seem so confusing in the the big picture, in the grand schemes of history, as well as all those things that seem so confusing in my day-to-day life and the things that happen to me. Now, I may not understand every event in either arena. I may not understand the things that come into my life. I don't like them. They confuse me. They hurt me. But it's vital to realize Even though I don't understand, God has a plan. And he is working that plan. And that plan will result in his glory, in our hearts overflowing with praise and worship, saying, God, I didn't see it, but you are incredible. You are so smart. I see it all now. This leaves us free to trust God. 
This leaves us free to, to enjoy God, to respond to God by loving the people around us without being distracted and overwhelmed by our own circumstances. But if uh, right now you're feeling considerable brain strain, uh, that's all right. Uh, These blessings are literally mind-blowing. That's why Paul uses the term back up in verse 8. He says, uh, these blessings God has lavished upon us. The term literally means overflowed on us. The best picture I've got is when my daughter was two, she got out her toy tea set to have a tea party. And I can still picture her pouring a half-gallon pitcher of apple juice into a little three-ounce toy (laughs) teacup. It filled up and overflowed. That's the term here. And as we begin to try to grapple with these blessings, it fills our minds and our hearts up to overflowing. We can't hold on to it all. But unlike that little teacup, as we do that, our minds and our abilities to comprehend grow. We catch a better picture. We understand a little more fully. We see the value a little a little more clearly. And we learn a little better how to put these blessings to work in our lives. And thus we begin to really bless God by letting Him see us enjoy His blessings. Let me finish up the final blessing. Blessing of security is is finished up in verses 13 and 14. Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. You were marked with Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Paul says, you have been included in Christ. You've been placed into Christ. When you heard the truth, the gospel, when you've heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross specifically to pay for your sins and to remove the obstacles between you and God so that you could give your life fully to God. Let Him live His life and His power out through your life. When you heard that and trusted God, you were placed in Christ. So what's true of Christ became true of you. When you said, God, I give you my life. You have loved me so. You were placed into Christ. And what's true of Christ became true of you. And at that point, you were marked with a mark of ownership, is the way Paul puts it. When somebody picks you up and turns you over, it says, property of God. And that's in there indelibly. It can't be ground off. It can't be polished off. You are marked as owned by God from now and for eternity. And that mark, he says, is the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in your life is the proof positive that you belong to God and that the process that He has begun, He is going to finish. The word He uses there for down payment, it means a pledge, it means earnest money. You're on layaway for God. And He has already invested enough that you better believe He's going to finish it. He's not going to walk away from this one. God is committed. Remember uh, 
One time uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of running in the hills with a friend. I came up to this one, it was a creek with very steep sides, and it was very deeply cut. It was probably, oh, it looked like a mile down, but it was probably maybe 10 feet, 15 feet at most. <laughs> and it was, it was probably five feet across. And we're looking at it, and we wanted to get to the other side. And we wanted to get to the other side, but we weren't going to jump. And we, it was just too scary. You know, what happens if you slide in? Finally, my friend took his coat and threw it to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be sure that we jumped. And we, at that point, we had no choice. We were committed. <laughs> and so we jumped and everything went fine. Well, God has thrown his coat across the creek. He is committed. He has gone too far to turn back. You cannot sin enough to make it worth his while to renege. Not that he ever would. But you see, the enemy is going to tell you that was one too many sins. Or that was one too many times at that sin. Don't you believe it? God has gone too far. And God has given you His Spirit inside of you. Giving you that profound desire to be completely God's. Giving you that hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be free from sin. Giving you that desire to love like God loves. And the Holy Spirit inside of you doing these things is the irrefutable evidence that you've been marked for eternity. That He is going to finish what He started. And that ultimately your life will be completely for the praise of His glory. Well, there's... Uh, our time's gone, but there, there's just, again, a, a few glimpses of these spiritual blessings in, in heavenly places. We, we didn't have time to really look very deeply, and each one of these we could have spent hours on. They're wonderful. You've been given some incredible gifts. Unwrap them. Look at them. Come back to this passage and start turning them over in your hands, seeing how precious they are, how expensive they were, how valuable they are, how they're going to profoundly bless your life. And as you do that, as you learn how to put these things to use, as you let them light up your eyes with delight, you will be blessing the giver of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. See, He has given you redemption. You're free. He's explained His plan to you. He's revealed it to you. You can understand now as you think about these things and as you explore them. And let Him give you that complete security in His love. You're marked as His from now and forever. Well, let's pray. Lord, sometimes we, with our untrained eyes, look at the beautiful jewel that You hand us and we think, what a nice rock. What a nice piece of glass. And we don't realize how incredibly valuable. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see more and more of the expense, the cost to you, of the expression of love, of your thought from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. You thought of these things. Help us to begin to really value them, to put them to use in our lives so that we will really bless you. Fill our hearts with delight. 
you for having loved us like that. Help us never to look at the gift and fail to bless the giver. We worship you. You are good beyond our ability to grasp or imagine. And we praise you. In your son's name, amen.